Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples-Wagner, Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. For the next few weeks, I'll be taking over this feed and talking to people we at The Cut love and admire or just find interesting. We'll explore how they found their path, what got in their way, and how they think about bringing others along now that they've arrived. After the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the confirmation of Justice Brett Kavanaugh, abortion rights proponents have been wailing with horror of what's next. Rebecca Traister's voice has always been reverberating in the choir, and she sounded off about abortion rights, the Democratic Party's failure to fully rally around the issue, and the slippery slope of what lies ahead. After the draft of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade leaked earlier this month, we've officially been faced with the reality that this could potentially be the law of the land. With an expected official decision this summer, 26 states already have laws that show intent to ban abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned or weakened. Rebecca joins us to talk about how we got here, what's next, and what's possible in the fight. Oh, Rebecca, I'm very excited to have this conversation with you today. I mean, we've talked about a lot of our abortion coverage for the cut for a while now, but specifically wanted to talk with you for our pod episode because your name has become so synonymous with abortion and reproductive rights. Why has this always been so personal to you and part of your purpose? And I think Uh, I was always wondering that because I've always felt like this work is so personal to me, almost to a fault Mm. and almost to being a bad thing where I take everything so personally. And I really deeply care. We were talking about this the other day. I feel like I care too much and take it on as like a personal responsibility. And it's not just a job. And I think we both feel that way. And so I'm curious of why this specific work has always been so important to you. It's a great question. I will say that given that my beat is so broad. It has, since the beginning of writing about gender politics and inequity in this country, which I started to do now almost 20 years ago when I was writing for Salon.com, there's been no way to write about that broad beat without writing about abortion politics. Yeah. When I first started writing about politics, again, this is like in 2003, 2004, I think many of my first stories about political figures were about their stances on abortion. It was in 2004, Democrats were running away from abortion as if that is what lost them the presidential election. John Kerry and Hillary Clinton were distancing themselves from abortion protection politics in a way that I was horrified by 18 years ago. More personally than that, I would say that that one of the very first political demonstrations I I ever went to. I was in junior high school and my friend's mother took me to Washington for one of the big pro-choice marches. And it was the first time that I'd ever been at a massive political gathering like that. And I was writing term papers about abortion politics when I was in the ninth grade. So there's this sort of personal history. And then as far as journalism goes, it's just been impossible to write about the politics of gender race, sexuality, 
inequality and injustice, which has been my job, without having made abortion central to it. No, that totally makes sense. I do think, though, because when we talked about this a month or two ago, and you were saying how, you know, you've been frustrated by this conversation around reproductive rights and people not taking it seriously for 20 years. Was there a specific moment in your work where you felt like things are not going to get better and people aren't taking it seriously enough? Or do you feel like it was a culmination of a lot of different things that you saw over the past 20 years? Well, there are different stages of my feeling like this is not going to get better better and people aren't taking this seriously enough. I mean, I can break it down into five moments where I knew that Roe was really going to be gone. And the first was in the Javits Center the night that Trump won. Um, The next was on a plane when I saw the headline that Anthony Kennedy was going to resign under Trump, permitting Trump to choose his replacement. The next was the confirmation day of Brett Kavanaugh. That's 2018. And then there was the night, there's the night that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And then I guess the day that Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed. And so I, I have this constellation of like it, every one of those times it hit me physiologically, like, you know, sort of, I felt some physical version of like the reality hitting me, you know, culminating so far with the leaked draft of Alito's opinion, fully overturning Roe. Yeah. It was such a weird experience. I was not surprised at all. And yet it was a physically shocking sort of experience for me that night. Yeah. I mean, you said that you weren't surprised at all. And I think obviously something, you know, predicting that something is happening and actually happening are are two different feelings. But how did your conversation shift and what did you say to people, you know, in conversations, whether it be with with women in your circle or just women in politics that were saying, you know, that you're being too hysterical and that it's not actually going to happen. And then this draft leaks and everybody's like, oh, shit, actually, this is going to happen. Well, you know, it's interesting. Not everybody is saying, oh, shit, this is going to happen. The assumption, and amongst my friends and peers who also write about this for a living, this has just been how we talk, right? Roe will be gone at the beginning of the summer. Now, that could mean, and it still could, we're still, we don't know, a complete overturn, right? Roe is overturned. It's Or it could just mean the gutting and hollowing out of Roe. And um, that's the position that John Roberts has reportedly, you know, been advocating for. But that is in its own way. And there's a lot of debate about what's more dangerous is the, you know, sort of official we keep row, but it is meaningless because once you uphold the 15 week ban that's at in question in this case, you are doing away with the very notion of viability. And so there's no legal difference between that 15 week ban and a you know, a six-week ban, a two-week ban, right. because you're doing away with the standard of, of viability. So Roe is gone with with Robert's moderate opinion, but the pundits can say, but Roe is still standing, which of course has been the fantasy under which people have been laboring for the past 40 years, even though Roe has been significantly hollowed out and diminished um, by Hyde and state restrictions. The other is the full overturn. And of course, that's what the Alito document was. And it was just, I mean, the Alito document was was shocking in its brazenness and I think was raised a real alarm for people who did not ever think that was going to happen. And I have been assured my whole life, right, Roe is never going to go. Roe is never going to go. And I'm sure the just calm down, don't be hysterical contingent, they're going to want everybody to just calm down, don't be hysterical in every circumstance, right? They're also they're also the people who, believe me, after this happens this summer is going to say there's still plenty of states where you can get abortions. Like There's always going to be a contingent that is going to tell you that this is not a problem. Right. 
and to raise the alarm that it is a very real problem that there are human beings and their families and their friends and their communities that are that are suffering and and gonna suffer further it, like it it makes people who are in obviously comfortable positions of power very uncomfortable and so the the impulse is always going to be no you're being over dramatic and yes that is that is what i have been told i wish i had the confidence sort of to tell everybody who's ever told me that i'm being hysterical to just fuck off but i but i fundamentally you should have. I, well, I, yeah, I, sh- I should have. It's, it's people with the most authority who say, just calm down. I just have kept doing my work and maintained that actually there was a lot to be concerned about, and that's what motivated a lot of the work that I do. Look at just the past five years in this country. Everything's up in flames. The planet is warming. There are people being shot in supermarkets by white supremacists. You have the police running over crowds after they protest the brutal killings of unarmed civilians. You have a pandemic that the government is actively turning its attention away from just as it spreads with the comfort that those with with access and privilege are still going to be able to get treatment for that illness. like, And you still have people saying, just calm down, everything's fine. And that's the dynamic that's going to take place with abortion. And and there's going to be this sense that those with privilege are going to be able to just keep getting the care and have the world that they've gotten used to. I, I don't think that that's true. I've written about that. I don't think that it, I, I think that those are false promises, just like the promise that Roe was never going to get overturned was a false promise. 100%. I think people want to stay comfortable. People don't. There's a lot of bandying about like the idea that the use of woke is a pejorative, and I think actually a pretty racist pejorative, um, and probably pretty sad. I mean, it, it, it's like come to stand woke woke politics have uh, has come to stand in as a pretty uh, racist and I think sexist word to denigrate uh, people who have progressive ideas about injustice and inequity. But if you think about what woke means or what its original reference point is, it's like people who have been awakened to something that they were asleep for. And one of my points of curiosity has always been who can afford to be asleep, right? Who can sleep? And people have a very strong desire to remain asleep. It's comfortable when you're asleep, right? Yeah. It's less work. It's a lot less work and it's a lot less fear. People don't want to be scared. And People, especially those who are used to having power and the comfort to remain asleep, are going to fight hard to insist that, don't worry, there's nothing to wake up for here. You don't have to lie awake at night afraid. You can go back to sleep. And that's a very power. It's very hard to fight against a a tide that powerful. No, I hear that. And I I think, I mean, obviously a lot of this is who has certain privileges and who doesn't. But I also think that a lot of this boils down to the language that we use in certain language that you can now tell scares certain people or it makes people feel a certain way. Even when we've talked, when you were talking about just the democratic party's refusal to really talk about defending abortion rights blatantly and not tiptoeing around it. I still can't even really wrap my head around why they have continued to play it so safe. So I, I mean, I want to hear your take on this, but I think also just the use of the word abortion and there's a clear strategy around politicians not wanting to use the word or not wanting to just blatantly say, this is the right thing to do and we all need to rally. And that I think that seems crazy to me that, you know, we're in that place in 2022 where 
it still feels like something that is so divisive uh, for politicians, even politicians that you may like or support in the Democratic Party. Um, and I'm curious of why you feel like this specific language is obviously holding people back in some way. Well, I think the roots of it are really, really deep. So it it starts with the idea that everything about, and it, you know, it's it's gendered, it's about women and women's bodies and gender nonconforming people's bodies. And it's really hard to overestimate the degree to which a capitalist white patriarchy is the thing that this country was built around. And that, I mean, that sounds jargony, but like, it's just so real, right? Our systems, yeah. our modes of communication, our government, our businesses, our economy, were all built from the ground. The idea that the people who would hold the most power in this country, again, politically, socially, sexually, and economically, were white men, wealthy white men, straight men, cis men, right, from before those that, that word had, had mm -hmm. meaning. And, of course, like those systems have been complicated and challenged, and it's not just white men in power anymore. It's not just straight white cis men in power, and that is absolutely true. But we certainly haven't altered the system that they built, right? We haven't altered its expectations and its rules. And so part of how we get to the notion that we can't even talk directly about abortion, what it is, or even really like have thoughtful conversations about people's different religious attitudes about it, right? Which are real and like, and yeah. philosophical attitudes. Like there are ways to have these conversations, but in order to do it, you have to have like a real openness and conversation about what's at stake. And there has been a reluctance on the part of a democratic party. Um, it's socially, certainly in schools to not even think about the fact that this is a country in which there's tremendous controversy about whether or not we teach sex ed, whether we have sexual education in this country. But, you know, controlling reproduction has been one of the most effective ways to, first of all, keep racial boundaries really strict and ra therefore racial hierarchies really strict and also gendered hierarchies in terms of who has power, who has economic power, who has domestic power, who has professional power, who has power within families, right? So controlling um, bodies and reproduction has is really key to the maintenance of the system. And part of what that has meant is that we don't even have those conversations about reproduction. Reproduction is kept in a realm. It's not just abortion. It's the, it's the mechanics of pregnancy itself. Our colleague Erin Carmone just wrote a piece about the real physical realities of pregnancy, you know, like the, you know, all the blood and the and the nails breaking and all, all of these different things that happen to the bodies of pregnant people. Um, and I saw so much reaction to this that was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And it's like, right, we don't even tell people what pregnancy entails. Right. right. We don't talk about it. We and we we laugh. There is an when I was growing up, it was like, oh, God, can you believe that on I Love Lucy when she was pregnant, they didn't even say the word pregnant. They didn't even acknowledge her her pregnancy. Right. We couldn't talk about pregnancy. And I'm like, okay, so we're a little better than that. But we still there's just not common regular everyday discourse about what this entails. Yeah. And then I think that a a right wing building steam at the end of the 70s, joining with an economically conservative Republican Party. This thing happened, which was the the joining of a of a religiously conservative sort of moral majority right wing in this country with the economic conservatives under Ronald Reagan, the building toward the, the Reagan years in the late 70s and early 80s. And they mounted an incredibly effective and strategic 
anti-abortion crusade. And they used all the language, all the good stuff, life and love and family, right? And at that point, the Democratic Party was still controlled (laughs) um, by a lot of anti-choice Democrats, right, who were still in power. And I'm using the language of choice here because it's reflexive because I was raised on it. I think it's bad language and I just used it. And you didn't have a pushback. It wasn't led by people who had a sort of deep and rigorous understanding of how abortion care is crucial to familial thriving and to freedom and to economic stability. There wasn't a countervailing force coming from the left, at least within a political uh, and electoral realm, that was willing to push back against the gobbling up of all that language. And once they got that language, right, faith, and there are so many faiths in this country that absolutely fully support access to abortion, right? Yeah. As fundamental, right? But somehow a right wing ate up all that language and nobody tried to get it back from them in any muscular way over, and it has been decades now. And then the more they owned that language, right? That language of life, even as anti-abortion forces were blowing up clinics and killing providers in their places of worship, somehow The anti-abortion right still managed to lay claim to this language of life and faith, respect for life, even as they were enacting violence, even as they were getting in the face of patients who needed care on their way to get the medical care that they needed, the health care that they needed. There was no willingness to say, wait a minute, no, access to this legal procedure is fundamental to familial thriving and stability. And and there are all kinds of people of faith who are willing to explain how it is not at odds with all kinds of religious belief systems. Um, There just wasn't that appetite for it. Again, as I say, up through, you know, I remember first writing about this with absolute fury in 2004 when the Democrats were saying, no, 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 we should make it rare. And then the other thing, uh, saying, there shouldn't be litmus tests for Democrats. We should have a big tent. We should w- welcome more anti-choice Democrats. Um, and meanwhile, the the anti-abortion Republican Party was doing really incredible strategic work, running for school board seats and state legislatures, gaining control of these state legislatures, where that they then passed incredibly restrictive laws that prevented all kinds of people from getting the care that they needed. You had the development of the Federalist Society, which was a pipeline of judges built to overturn Roe and and erode all kinds of other freedoms and protections that were won in the mid-20th century and earlier. There were pipelines of judges and systems that were being put to work. Mitch McConnell stole a Supreme Court seat from a popularly elected president, and there just wasn't a, a party that resisted, yeah. that that could effectively fight back, in part because they'd ceded all kinds of this language to their opponents, because they were too scared, I think, to actually stand up for the bodies of, of women and gender nonconforming people, people with uteruses. They were, they have always, a Democratic Party has for a long time been really anxious about its own base, about aggressively, muscularly, robustly representing people of color, poor people, women and gender nonconforming people. And you can see the results of that 
in a sort of failure to muscularly fight this encroachment, which has been happening over a period of decades. And through that entire time, people in the media, people in political journalism, people in the Democratic Party keep saying, don't worry, it's not really going to happen. You're all hysterical. You're all being overdramatic. This is not going to happen. We've got it under control. But they did not have it under control. Even the systems that they control, the political mechanisms themselves, were either perverted and broken, as in Mitch McConnell stealing the Supreme Court seat, or working as they were originally supposed to, like the Electoral College, to give more power to white supremacist voters. And that's how two of the presidents, you know, the Electoral College won the White House over a majority of voters in the United States um, in two instances. And those two instances landed us with this, plus the perversion of the system by Mitch McConnell, landed us with the Supreme Court majority we have now. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Don't you feel like part of this language that I think is saying this is never going to happen, people are being hysterical, or that things are not going to be as bad as we are assuming, not necessarily projecting, is really coming from the place that people keep reiterating that specifically white, upper class, cis women will be fine. And so then if they'll be fine, everybody else is fine. Mm -hmm. This is something that you and I have talked about before that is a huge struggle because I often feel like as a Black woman and specifically a Black woman in this role, you don't want to always use your time just trying to like shake people into realizing there, there are so many problems that they just blindly, you know, ignore all throughout their day where I feel like even when there were, you know, protests a couple of weeks ago and still going on, all of my friends who are women of color are like, okay, yeah, we got to go. Like we, this is what we do. Like we show up, we show up for other women, whether they feel like this is important, we show up for other people, whether they feel like this is actually going to change anything or not. We, you know, showed up all throughout the pandemic at BLM protests. We show up again. Whereas I feel like it still feels like there is this disconnect of, racially connecting between classes of women, if that makes sense. And I think that has been really hard for me as well, because it often just feels like I I don't want to spend my time like educating people on like, this is really important. And like, you have to understand this because you can only tell people so much if they don't, you know, if they don't want to believe it, they don't. But I think also feeling like the burden continues to fall on marginalized communities and just a general frustration around not taking things seriously enough. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to the thing I was saying before about who can who can stay asleep, right? You're absolutely right that, first of all, I mean, white women vote Republican. They always vote Republican. I mean, that still baffles me. It doesn't Crazy. baffle me. There's a lot in it for us. Chaos. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that Brittany Cooper, like, she's the person who sort of best articulated for me the the shape of it, right? In a white patriarchy, 
it's a minor it's minority rule, right? Which is part of what we're actually talking about politically, literally, with presidents who are elected by a minority of voters, right? So this is not just imaginary jargon about white patriarchy. It's a minority rule. That's like what the country was built around, and it is in fact what the country still has in lots of contemporary iterations, including the Donald Trump presidency, right? And yeah. the Senate. You know, the fact that these more populous states if it were broken down, I can't remember what the numbers are, but like it's it this is designed to keep power with the party that represents the interests of the wealthy, the white, and the male. Okay. But yeah. it's a minority, right? And so theoretically, if that minority only can count on its own selves for to show up for itself, it could be overwhelmed by a majority, even though it has a disproportionate share of the power, like, you know, by a billion. But you actually have to put incentives in place to get members of the majority to support your shit, right? There are two directions that these things go on offer for. And whiteness is particularly alluring to white women who wind up in community, in family, in marital, familial relationships as wives, partners, daughters, sisters, neighbors, of white men and therefore directly benefit themselves and benefit themselves even independent of their relationship with men as white people who who enjoy all kinds of um, economic and professional and social and, and sexual advantage, right? White supremacy mm-hmm. benefits white women. And then in the other direction, patriarchy, the benefits of patriarchy are extended to men in all kinds of communities of color and and you know, otherwise overburdened communities. And that is, you know, the other sort of direction of appeal. And how do you get this minority to gain any kind of traction? And again, the the whiteness is a much, for, for the white women, the white women are on that with a lot more enthusiasm, right? Um, than mm-hmm. any other sector. Because again, they they benefit so directly. But the thing that you were describing, which is black women in particular, showing up over and over again, it's something that Brittany said to me, and and for years, it's like neither of those things is on offer for black women, right? Neither whiteness nor mm-hmm. patriarchy, the benefits of neither, which is one of the reasons that there's been no sort of incentive permitting sleep. I remember focus groups after the 2016 election with white women from the Midwest who voted for Trump, who were told afterwards, well, if they'd known that abortion was at stake, they wouldn't have voted for Trump. Now, you know, I don't know that that was true because if you were voting for yeah, Trump at that point— <laughs> The sense that, like, it's not going to affect white women, white people, is something that I've really thought a lot about because it is such a description of the last 40 years in abortion reality. And this is something that I think I want to be really clear about. Yeah. The description of a world in which, you know, white middle class people are going to be fine and be able to get the abortions that they need is 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 a overdue description of basically life practically since Roe. It is not a description of life after Roe. And we haven't been honest. Mainstream media, the Democratic Party, even a lot of reproductive organizations have not been straightforward about the level of inaccessibility of abortion that has existed over decades. And so there was this period over the past few years where it has become perhaps even more fashionable and correct to say white middle class people are going to be able to get abortions. Um, But that's actually that's that's like been projected as the future thing when, in fact, it's just the overdue acknowledgement of the reality now. And since the late 70s, the irony is that I think that 
people have said it in an attempt to say, like, look, this is an issue of racism, of economic inequality. It's it's trying to convey the disproportionate harm that all kinds, uh, that that certainly abortion restrictions and insurance limitations, Hyde Amendment stuff, uh, you know, waiting periods, criminalization, incarceration, all of these things disproportionately harm overburdened communities already and are going to continue to disproportionately harm those communities moving forward. But the articulation of it, which says nothing's going to change if you have certain kinds of privilege, I think not only isn't true moving forward, but is this is the thing. We're fighting the impulse to go back to sleep. We're fighting to keep people awake. And people are scared, you know, the, the... for very good reason, on all kinds of fronts. The human impulse, I guess, is to not thinking about the hard and scary stuff. And so I think that that message like, oh, white people are going to be fine, is totally anesthetizing. And it's anesthetizing to classes of people who actually have, you know, you talk about the people who continuously and rigorously show up to protest, to work, to vote, right? Mm-hmm. And the irony is that it's the people who don't do that, the white women who vote Republican or don't pay any attention at all or can sort of remain outside of it because the, of the fantasy that none of this affects them, right, are actually people who have enormous resources. That's one of the things you saw between 2016 yeah. and 2018, right, is the mobilization of white suburban women that happened after the election of Donald Trump. One of the reasons it had an impact, and this sucks, by the way, let me just say, I'm not describing this as like a great thing, is that those were women who had time to go to meetings multiple times a week. They had time to knock doors. They had money, money to give to candidates, money to host gatherings in their homes, right? And it was it was a massive political force that was unleashed. And it sucks because that's not to overcredit those women, right? But this is also the reason that there are incentives in place to keep them asleep. There's there are whole systems that rely on those women either not paying attention or voting for Republicans. Because those women do have power, in part because of their racial and class privilege. And they don't even use it. It kills me. Yeah. There were some of those women who really were awakened. There, I mean, I, I reported a lot on them between 2016 and 2018. And I also think there was a, a story that's told about them that's not not totally accurate, which is that a lot of them actually were. It wasn't just there was there was this there was an easy wiping away of those women is like they just wanted to go back to brunch and some of some of that was a hundred percent true okay but like there was also a dismissal of them that worked to dismiss them right there was a sense that this was like dilettante um and it, and it, it was coming from it was coming from democratic party people um it was coming from the consultants who you know saying these women are unserious they don't and and from the democratic party itself some of those women were really awakened briefly and politicized and learned a lot and were, you know, I use this word with some hesitation, but to some degree was sort of radicalized in a way that none of them expected to be. But then what they what they found themselves with was a party that didn't want to talk about any of this stuff anymore. And that that also is is part of what we're looking at right now. Yeah. I mean, what would be your hope or, you know, for women listening to this and saying, okay, what what should I what should I do? Because I think obviously what we're doing on the cut right now is offering so many resources and information. If you 
need to go get an abortion, if you would like to look into getting an abortion for yourself or a friend or a family member, all the different kinds of ways that even if you are having issues finding access, ways around that. But I think also part of a big part of this is education and action, whether it's donating or just understanding more what you need to be involved in or watching. And so I'm curious of, of what you would want women in your circle or um, women that come up to you at panels like they did a couple weeks ago to be aware of and to be watching for. Okay. So this sounds, there's, there's like micro and macro. Yeah. Because I think that people need to think about that model of how the right did this, right? Which was getting its people really engaged on m- minor like what seemed like small potatoes, local elections, right? This is key in the local elections, right? And the Democratic Party has been really bad at prioritizing local elections. Often there are, you know, all these stats about all these local races that like Democrats didn't even run in, you know? So on the one hand, one of the most important things is to not be lulled into complacency or not caring or not prioritizing this, right? And it means starting to think about the politics around you at a school board level. Um, It means seeking out candidates who you support, especially if we're talking about middle-class people, supporting them with dollars and time and energy, the kind of stuff that we were talking about. It may mean, you know, running yourself, thinking about running for office and learning how to do it responsibly, not just jumping in, right? Like they're great organizations yeah. like Run for Something. They're, they're all kinds of, you know, higher heights. There are all kinds of organizations that train candidates. And that's something to think about. Also look around you and see who in your community encourage the people who inspire you um, to run for office and then support them again with your time and your money. So there's, there's that kind of paying attention to local politics. There's the not looking away from the reality and not looking away from what it's been. There's also the sort of personal level, which is talking about this stuff much more openly um, with your friends, challenging friends who don't want to talk about it, actually having mm-hmm. real conversations about the 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 realities of of pregnancy and abortion, but also about the realities of how all kinds of policies are interwoven around around these issues. There are books that are, you know, incredibly useful on these topics and it's worth it to to read them and think about them and then recommend them to friends you know read dorothy roberts killing the black body um read you know Mich- michelle goodwin's policing the womb read robin marty's handbook for a post row america read katha pollitt's pro there are so many good books that have been written about this there's so much powerful journalism it's a very real thing that we can all do to learn more i have learned so much over 20 years from reading my colleagues and i understand the issue so much better than i did 20 years ago even though my understanding remains imperfect and we can all do that that, right? I didn't go to school on this. I didn't, I didn't, in fact, at all study it in school. I mean, I never took a gender studies class when I was an undergraduate. Um, I didn't know any history around any of this stuff until I was already working and already writing about it. But that kind of education is available to all of us who can, you know, who can go to a library. And it's really worth doing for the people who have time. And ability to read and learn and then insist on having those conversations within their communities. 
we will we will add to the list for sure, but we always want people to be as informed as possible, but also take action. And this is such an important issue that we hope you all take seriously. And thank you so much, Traster. We bow down per usual. No, thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. In Her Shoes is hosted by me, Lindsay Peoples. Our producer and editor for this episode is Taka Zen. Our engineer is Brendan McFarlane, and our executive producer is Hannah Rosen. The Cut is made possible by the excellent team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Lindsay Peoples. Thank you for listening.